But equally, we need to look at some medium and short-term measures to make it an, an attractive and a, and a well-protected and secure and decent place for people to even spend two or three years in if they're passing through, because then they'll recommend those experiences and they're the good feel um, knock-on recommendations that we need to then attract people to, to stay in the industry for long-term careers. Today on Dirty Linen, we are digging back into one of our favourite topics here on the podcast. It's about workforce issues in hospitality, the culture of hospitality work. Our expert guest today is Associate Professor Richard Robinson. He works in the Faculty of Business, Economics and Law um, at the University of Queensland. But Richard actually has a long background as a chef um, and manager in hospitality in both uh, club um, and hotel sectors before joining the university. Richard, welcome to Daddy Linen. Hello, Danny. Um, pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, I mean, we're here to talk about a new study that you've just released called Serving Up a Fair Go, Surfacing Mm. Cultural Issues in Hospitality Employment. And it is so rich and juicy. But I would like to start by asking you a little bit more about yourself. Um, Tell us about your background as a chef and what took you to this new work as an academic. Um, yeah, so thanks, Danny. Um, I actually went straight to university as a school leaver, but I was quite immature and quite impatient, and it didn't really stick with me at the time. And I fell into hospitality um, and cookery quite by accident in some respects, but I became extremely passionate about it. I loved the lifestyle. I loved all the affordances that hospitality had um, in terms of the sociability, in terms of the excitement, in terms of some of the splendid venues and places that you get to work in, in terms of the mobility it afforded and so on. And I got passionate about cooking as well, really passionate about cookery and sort of sunk my heart and soul into it. Um, and I guess I um, was was sort of enmeshed or embedded in the world of hospitality until my mid-20s when I started to uh, look around me and look at some of the broken bodies and look at some of the cultural issues and so on, becoming more aware of it as I matured and realised I needed a bit of a plan B for later on. So I re-embarked on my studies, but um, with two children back then, we ended up having three. Um, it was a long journey to, to get qualifications. Um, during that time, my, my career still progressed. And as you just mentioned, I worked across the um, private club, um, hotel, um, facilities, conferences, restaurants, cafes, every sector you could name, I guess, um, and into leadership positions. And I spent the last 10 or so years of my career sort of large, leading large brigades and being part of the management teams at clubs and facilities that I worked at at the time. Um, and all along the way, I guess I was um, upskilling myself or, or, or getting my uh, educational qualifications. And then quite by accident, again, I, I sort of fell into academia. At the um, early 2000s, um, I was actually studying my MBA then, and the objective was to get off the tools, to get out of the kitchen, more onto the management side. But it intersected with a period of huge demand for tourism, hospitality, and um, events programs from 
from the student market. And I guess the people that were teaching me saw some potential in me. They said, oh, Robinson, you can write a sentence and you've got some industry experience. And before I knew it, um, I was getting gigs uh, teaching and so on. And then they said, you have to do this thing called a PhD, which I had no idea what that was. But uh, anyway, I... Um, invested myself in that and uh, luckily because there was so much work around at the time in the in the higher education sector they gave me a full-time job at the University of Queensland eternally grateful a sort of uh, a double scholarship if you like um, and I did my PhD on the workplace experience as a chef and um, I've always been passionate as an educator and a researcher about contributing back to an industry that was really good to me, um, but that also uh, um, has the potential to, to alter some people's lives, um, sometimes for not the best. And I feel this deep responsibility with my work now to try and make a difference and this latest report, Danny, that we've just reported is fairly sobering and not fun sort of research to publish. I'd much rather tell another story, but I think it comes at a really interesting point in time where the industry really needs to look very carefully at the experiences that provides for its workers um, and get on the front foot, especially in the very tight labour market. Yeah, well, you do have a, a really unique insider perspective um, and able to, I guess, overlay the academic approach to this real um, coalface um, experience that you've had in the industry. So mm. this report, again, the title, Serving Up a Fair Go, Surfacing Cultural Issues in Hospitality Employment. Uh, break that down for us. What does this report look into? Um, sure. So starting from the beginning a little bit, Danny, if you'll indulge me, um, I have a, a lot of international collaborations, mainly across Scandinavia, Britain, Northern Europe and so on. And we'd been talking for a fair while about broadly about decent and secure work in, in hospitality and tourism employment. They're both highly interrelated. Um, and one of our colleagues um, designed a, a survey and administered in Ireland and got a huge amount of um, traction with her report. Industry leaders, of course, were... Um, uh, you know, quite railed back and uh, didn't want to own it and so on. But um, politicians did and she got a lot of traction and, and policymaker attention. And so we decided to replicate this survey across a number of other places like Scotland, Norway, Greece, New Zealand, all at around the same time. And I, of course, led the, the Australian study. Um, and we found remarkably consistent results, um, which is the which is the first point. So in most developing nations, it seems as though uh, a lot of these conditions are, are fairly consistent. And what we did is we based it around the five fair work principles. Now, the fair work principles is a framework that researchers at the Oxford University um, first developed about 12 or 18 months ago. And it was designed originally to test labour market conditions in the gig economy or platform work. Um, so whether that's um, food delivery or, you know, Uber 
transport or um, even platform work in terms of outsourcing clerical work. They wanted to know um, how that measured up on five key indicators, and they are one, fair contracts, two, fair pay, three, fair conditions, four, fair representation, and number five, fair management. Um, and they even have a tool that gives a little bit of a scorecard for that. So we decided to use this framework, which was designed for the gig economy and adapt it to the hospitality sector. And um, essentially, that's what we did here in Australia, like my colleagues did internationally. So I suppose in one sense, it's it's perhaps encouraging that Australia is not a standout in terms of being worse than these other territories. But of course, you'd, you'd rather be a leader in great conditions. Um, tell me about some of the, I suppose, before we even get to the findings, you know, the kinds of things that you were you were looking to investigate. Um, yes, yeah, so I guess through those five work, five fair work principles, we were really trying to unpick what decent or secure work looked like for hospitality workers, how they responded and what were some of their experiences and conditions. And Danny, I have to be really quick because I've been doing some media on this and I always um, want to present sort of a balanced picture. Um, we had about 400 respondents to our survey. So obviously that's a very small percentage of the hospitality workforce in Australia. <clears throat> and because of the way that we disseminated the survey, which was largely through social media networks, particularly Facebook insider Facebook network groups um, for the industry, whether that's for waiters, um, chefs, um, baristas and bar workers and so on and so forth. We're not claiming that we have uh, a representative sample and that this is the experience of all hospitality workers in Australia. I've been um, in my research role and in my teaching role and in my industry roles around long enough to know that there are some best practice and champion employees out there who take um, their worker experiences extremely seriously, have zero tolerance for bad behaviours and so on. Um, however, what we do know is that the majority of the hospitality industry is made up by small to medium enterprises, which don't necessarily have the best structures in place where it can take a long time for uh, changes in policy to filter down, which often is the one of the root causes for wage theft, wage exploitation, is that um, people on the ground um, haven't yet adapted to changes to awards or, or whatever that might be. So I guess I'm just putting these um, caveats in place to explain to your listeners that I'm not trying to tar all with the same brush. However, the people that did respond to our survey were what, what I described as stayers rather than passes through. So we know that a lot of, a lot of young people, in fact, about 65% of um, young people get their very first work experience either in the, the hospitality, leisure or um, ser um, service sectors, retail sectors. Um, and, but a lot of these people are passing through. They're, they're passing through because they're doing it as a part-time gig while they're studying or they're doing it to get their first foothold in the labour market or a range of other because of the, because of family business, whatever the reason might be. But 75% of the respondents 
to our survey had had industry tenure of between three and 20 years. So we're pretty confident that the experiences of the people that responded to our survey are experiences that people in hospitality, if they work in it for, as a career or as a long-term proposition, would have witnessed in with at least one or more of their employees, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose with these kinds of things, it's perhaps the people who have more of a grievance. I feel they have more to say, more feedback, if we, you know, use that neutral word, um, that may be more inclined to respond to such a survey. But even so, putting all that, um, well, in that given with that as I guess a frame for our conversation what Mm. kinds of um, findings did you make yeah, so I'll do it in a very boring but structured way. So, in terms of um, instead of in terms of contracts, thirty percent of our respondents said that they'd not reported uh, ever seeing a contract or being asked to sign a contract um, when they started to 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 work a job, and one in twelve workers did never received a pay slip. Um, I'm presuming that some of those might have been cash in hand payments and we know that the informal economy is a big part of the the hospitality sectors, um, particularly in in certain parts of the market. Um, Regarding fair pay, nearly 20% of respondents did not receive their minimum pay rates or were unsure. So that's partly related to contract. If there's no contract, they actually don't know what the their wage entitlement is Um, and nearly half said that there were no pay increases in their current workplace this is um, this corroborates with other research that's been done by hospo voice which is the new now defunct part of the united workers union (coughs) excuse me is that um, there seems to be Uh, no opportunity for people in hospitality workplaces to get a pay increase other than through a promotion. So that is that performance doesn't seem to be um, acknowledged or rewarded. Um, And then 45% report uh, reported not receiving penalty rates or loading entitlements or or getting the break times to which they were entitled. And 50% didn't get any rewards um, beyond basic pay, um, which might be common in other industries, um, rather citing things such as free meals, unpaid leave and um, and free alcohol, and we'll come back to the free alcohol. So I guess they're the big ticket items in terms of the, the contracts and the pay, Danny. Wow. Um it's not starting off well. What about no. conditions? Yeah, so conditions. This is where this is where it gets a, a, even more slippery, really. Um, so we did conduct this survey in um, admit, amidst COVID, and um, with a lot of the statements relating to mental health and well-being, um, about fifty percent of respondents strongly agreed or agreed with the with the negative statements um, re- relating to their mental health. Um, and men were generally faring worse in their well-being than women, which um, is is quite usual. We know that women are are more resilient than men, but the downside to that is that despite it being quite a gendered industry in terms of front um, line employment, we know that 
the management and the supervisor levels tend to be more um, male heavy. Um, so, so obviously, the the further up the chain you go, the more likely you are to be a man, and the less likely you are to be coping in terms of mental health and well-being. And I know that's a topic that you've spoken about um, previously on Dirty Linen. Definitely. Uh, yeah. Uh, and, and work that I've done down um, in, in Melbourne, in particular in partnership with William Anglis Institute and, and, and chefs down there. Um, in terms of conditions, um, 60% of our sample, and this is where things get really sad, had experienced verbal, psychological bullying or sexual harassment and over 70% had um, witnessed that form of behaviour. And um, although customers at 50% were reported as the main perpetrators, over 40% said that the abuse also came from their managers, supervisors and their co-workers and um, if you'll indulge me, I have some, some stories that sit behind that that, um, that bring that to life um, for your listeners in a, in a rather nasty way. I was speaking to um, um, one woman who started as a, as a young teenager, teenager with one of our fast food giants, um, as a lot of our young people do. And there was this ritual as the shift started where the female manager used to come and touch the bottom and the breasts of every single female worker in that fast food giant um, establishment. And it wasn't until 10 years later that this that this woman actually realised that that was wrong. And this comes down to a lot of the, the, the root causes of this behaviour. I'm, I'm presuming that the very first time it happened to her, she was a little bit shocked, but she looked around to see what the reaction of the others were. And the reaction to the others were that they probably just had their head down and just pretended it was normal. So she thought it was normal. And then from then on, she, she put up with that behaviour, I guess. Um, but this sort of um, this sort of um, behaviour then becomes ingrained, socialised, ingrained, and and and, and normalised. Um, in terms of the actual abuse from customers, um, one of the participants in our study related a story where she worked across multiple venues with one of our instantly recognisable pub chains. And um, the bar was understaffed and the customers were getting quite impatient. There was a, some sort of a tab on the bar. Um, and in, uh, eventually they started to get impatient. So one of the males decided to jump the bar, assault her and push her aside so that he could pour his own beer. And um, she had a little bit of a meltdown. She um, called the manager downstairs and they came up, they wrapped her under a blanket and she sort of had a complete breakdown there while the staff finished her shift unpaid. And um, that worker to this day, a uh, young university student, is um, undergoing therapy and experiences what she calls as PTSD. So the, the, the statistics are one thing, but when we bring that to life with stories, as my co-researcher says, this is... This is a real low point for us as researchers to, to, to read this and, and to listen to the stories. They're real. Um, the stories behind the numbers. Um, 
And I, and I guess, um, you know, in terms of um, fair management, um, most of the workers, uh, well, well, about 50% of the workers said that they didn't feel as though they treated with dignity or respect by their managers. And in instances like this, when they were being sexually harassed or, or abused, quite often the managers or supervisors were telling them it's just part of the job. You've just got to suck it up. You've got to be more resilient. And quite often that's because, um, you know, alcohol a big player um, in hospitality type establishments um, and there's this feeling that um, you know the customer's always right with their for their pleasure and their entertainment and um, you've got to put on a little bit of a, uh, a thicker skin so I guess um, I guess that's the role that um, management need to step up to the plate a little bit and um, uh, you know, in, ca in, in the case of the, the young woman's bullying that I just mentioned, I asked her a direct question. I asked her, um, were there any protocols in, in your um, training or in your business about how you might deal with harassment or deal with a manager that's being abusive to you? And I was quite astonished to hear her say that there hadn't. Now, I'm not saying that there wasn't, but if there was, then she obviously hadn't had access to it or it wasn't communicated in a way to her that would be memorable and, and actionable. So I think there's rather simple things that the industry can do to address um, some of these some of these shortfalls in the way um, workers are, are treated and their capacity to actually be very affirmative in the way that they deal with that rather than having to feel as though they put up with it. So, yeah, you mentioned solutions. What, what kinds of things do you see um, as, you know, worthwhile roads to go down? Yeah, I, well, the first thing I was going to mention is that I think there's a little bit of a vicious cycle here. One of the reasons that workers feel quite disempowered, um, there's a couple of structural reasons for that. Firstly, a lot of hospitality employees are precariously or contingently employed, so either on casual contracts or, or like the gig economy is doing, normalising zero-hour contracts. So they're quite often unwilling to speak out because they lack any um, a security, an employer doesn't have to tell them um, that they're giving them a warning or anything like that. They just need to not roster them on the next week and there's no um, comeback for the employees, so they're quite vulnerable. I also think in general in society there's a um, – we, we've lost uh, an understanding for the value of service. We all want to be served, but we don't want to serve. And I think this has a knock-on effect in the way that we treat the people that serve us and their, and in turn their disposition in terms of not feeling empowered or important um, and a reluctance to be affirmative. So there are a number of structural issues in terms of hospitality employment there that, um, that I think um, need to be addressed at a, at a very deep structural level. <clears throat> Some of the solutions, um, I'm always for the carrot rather than the stick. I think um, education programs, I think, um, you know, this, this, this report has received a, a fair bit of publicity and um, but we don't hear industry commenting on it. So I'd really like, 
industry to start taking ownership of these issues and industry associations are often silent on this because um, their membership are, are paying them to represent them and not to and not to whack them over the head or to criticize them so sooner or later there needs to be some um, some impetus or um, uh, what's the word some endorsement from employers to get industry associations to to give voice to their concerns that they want to address these issues we're in a really really tight labor market at the moment and hospitals Hospitality is competing with a lot of other industries and sectors for uh, the same set of transferable skills. There's been a massive leakage during COVID of um, hospitality workers to the to the health and allied health and um, aged care sectors and so on, where the working conditions are hardly as exciting as hospitality. There's really not that experience, that extra value. Um, that can be created for people, but they're secure, they're decent, they're protected, um, and people are voting with their feet. So I think um, I think the hospitality industry needs to look at some of the conditions that their competitor industries are, are offering, um, and some of the. Um, safety nets and benefits that they're providing for for those workers um, and um, and see if they can replicate those. Um, the construction industry a number of years ago identified that it had a cultural issue with the way that its employees were treated and they set up an organisation called Mates and Construction in partnership with um, universities so they could evaluate interventions and um, improve them over time and uh, now we're seeing a lot of women actually enter um, the construction industry they I'm sure their story is still coming out but they've also obviously felt safe enough that they can um, go and carve out not just jobs and occupations but also careers in that sector <clears throat> so um, so it can certainly happen with an mm. appetite I think you know one thing that leaps to my mind, let's say, let's continue thinking about construction as a comparison. The building and construction industry doesn't have an issue raising prices when it need, when its costs increase, whereas yeah. hospitality really does. Businesses yes. find it very difficult to um, pass the costs of better conditions on to consumers. Um, and, yeah. I mean, it, it, it does, as you say, like a lot of these things are cyclical and circular. It does tie back to that overall respect for the work that's done in hospitality, in, in yeah. my opinion. I mean, yeah. where do you see that issue yeah, that's a really good point, Danny. I think one of the um, structural issues that I've been um, grappling with recently is that because the, we talk a lot about low entry barriers into employment in hospitality, but we don't often talk about the low entry barriers into business ownership. So, for example, a common story is a couple just received their um, payout from their superannuation. They're retiring and it's, oh, let's open a cafe or oh, let's open a B&B. Um, and there's nothing really to stop them from doing that apart from the capital that they need to because there aren't really strong accreditation, professionalisation standards. <clears throat> and that has two negative outcomes, I guess. The first one is that um, we're getting people that are coming into the industry without any knowledge of the industry and there's a risk that they won't be compliant not through um maldoing for uh, necessarily but through ignorance i guess the second is that there's 
um, always way too much supply in the market than there is demand for it from a um, from a from a market perspective, and what that means is that there's that you're spreading. Uh, an already thinly spread labour market even more thinly over many more establishments, which um, counteracts secure work. Um, Restaurant caterers did a study quite a number of years ago now which estimated that in Victoria there were a third too many restaurants in the marketplace at any one time that the local communities could support. So what that meant is in that Victorian um, labour market, the hospitality workforce had to had to spread across those third extra businesses, rather contract it down and find some equilibrium in the marketplace by raising professional standards, so that employers would be operating at closer to a hundred percent capacity rather than sixty percent capacity, and could hopefully employ more people full time securely and offer them the benefits of um, secure employment. Mm. Uh, so these are complex issues, and, yeah. and, some, and, and some of them run contrary to uh, you know the, the, the conservative governments that tend to hold sway um, in our political landscape most of the time as well. Well, I think it's also you know you've got that macro view, and you know I agree. Well, I think a lot of business owners would agree that there are you know too many restaurants on their street, and it's mm. hard to spread out the customers and the staff. But at the same time. You know, it's like to have that um, that decline in uh, businesses, you know, is it my business? Is it the one next door? Um, and can I raise prices in the meantime? It's um, it's just tricky to get to that level levelling out. It, it, it is very tricky and this, this raises another issue that the Australian government itself estimated that the informal or grey economy um, the, or the cash economy, if we want to call it that, um, it constitutes between 3 and 15% um, of the marketplace in, in Australia. And a lot of those would be in service businesses and a lot of those would be in hospitality. And the informal economy where a lot of our international students and a lot of migrants are employed um, are paying, you know, up to 50% under the um under the award rate and of course that creates a completely unlevel playing field in the marketplace and makes it extremely difficult for businesses that try to operate above the line and I mean above the line in every sense of the word extremely difficult for them to compete in fact one of my colleagues says it's almost impossible for an operator to operate completely cleanly in the hospitality industry um, given the, the competitive landscape and, and, and the informal economy and some of the cultural practices that go on. Yeah, and I think they would also point to the complexity in some of the, um, in some of the awards and, uh, yeah, the administering of them um, mm. also makes it hard to be 100% compliant, even if that is what you're aiming to do. Um, yes. So, I mean, well, I mean, let's round it out, Richard, with, I suppose, you know, if... I know you wear your academic hat, but you also have this vast experience in the industry. I mean, does it does it resonate with you? You know, you know how how tricky it is for businesses to change. You know, those ships to turn around. Do you feel overall optimistic, or do you feel like this is going to be a really long haul? Um, look, I was at a I was at an industry panel this morning actually, and I and um, 
I was given sort of 30 seconds to talk about my my research and one of the people in the room said, oh, we've had that problem forever. Um, so I, I think we've had skills, labour shortages and structural industries in hospitality and the service economy for the past 20 or 30 years. Um, and, and we are in it for the long haul and there is no silver bullets. Um, the industry at the moment is sort of champing at the bit just to unlock the international labour market, but it looks as though that ain't coming back quick. So I think there needs to be some balanced solutions here, some some measured short-term solutions to um unlock some skills shortages in in the short term because the hospitality industry is a really big part of the Australia's service economy and apart from that a big contributor to um, community and social well-being we shouldn't ever forget that that it's um, that it creates a, a dynamic and it creates a place and a space for people to enjoy themselves and it's healthy for the well-being of our community but equally we need to look at some medium and short-term measures to make it an, an attractive and a, and a well-protected and secure and decent place for people to even spend two or three years in if they're passing through because then they'll recommend those experiences to their younger brothers and sisters or their cousins or their children in due course. And they're the good feel um, knock-on recommendations that we need to then attract people to, to stay in the industry for long-term careers. And unfortunately, what I'm hearing and seeing from some of the other research I'm doing is that it's not only our frontline workers that we're currently using, but it's that middle um, middle management supervisory um, level of worker that we're losing. And they have a huge amount of cultural knowledge and cultural capital that um, that would diminish this, um, this sort of knowledge pool of the industry in terms of how to do stuff and how to be more efficient. Yeah, well, I guess it's interesting that, you know, you yourself have, have left the industry in that sense, but you do have, you're still putting into it with um, with this research. So, yeah, it's it's fascinating. And I'm, I'm so grateful to have the opportunity to, to learn more about your work. Um, yeah, please stay in touch. Let us know what, what happens next. And uh, we'll put a link to the report, Serving Up a Fair Go, um, in the show notes for the podcast so people can have a read for themselves. But thanks so much for talking us through it today, Richard. Thanks so much for your time, Danny. All the best. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you.